They say you can learn a lot from a person by how they live, by watching their actions and reactions, how they respond in the moment, what they do in the face of opposition. And if this person is worthy of imitation, worthy of becoming like, worthy of taking our cues, the only way then is to get to know them by following their directions and by listening to their instructions. And if we want to be just like Jesus, we need to get to know him too. We need to read how he responded in the moment, what he did in the face of opposition, how he lived, how he spoke, his actions and reactions. You want to be just like Jesus? Follow him. Well, we're back in the book of Mark, and so go ahead and flip to Mark chapter 10. We're in week 42 of the book of Mark. I don't know if it's impacting your life, but it sure is mine. I think just the slow walk with Jesus as we see the words he says and his actions his spirit, his teaching, it can really impact and change us and become more like Jesus. And I encourage you not just to allow your time of the word to be a one and done on Sunday morning, but uh, please be in the word throughout the week. And that's where God will really begin to shift and change your heart and your affections. Uh, Mark chapter 10, we're going to go and read the entire uh, section here, the part we uh, started with last week. And so we're going to go from verse 17 all the way down to verse 34. So if you could follow along uh, with me, it'd be great. Verse 17, and as he, with Jesus, was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments, do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. And he said to him, teacher, all these I have done since my youth. And Jesus looking at him, loved him and said to him, you lack one thing, go sell all that you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful for he had great possessions. And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus said to them again, children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And they were exceedingly astonished and said to him, Then who can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, With man it is impossible, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. Peter began to say to him, See, we have left everything and followed you. Jesus said, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house, left house, brothers or sisters or mother or father, or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel, who will not receive a hundredfold Now in this time, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come, eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. And they were on the road going up to Jerusalem. And Jesus was walking ahead of them and they were amazed and those who were following were afraid. 
And taking the twelve again, talk, uh, taking the twelve again, he began to tell them what was to happen to him, saying, "See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and to the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles, and they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him, and after three days he will rise." Let's pray, and we'll look at this passage. Father God, we thank you so much for your word that gives us truth, direction to live by. God, it ultimately points us to you. History is about you. This life is about you. And God, I thank you for Jesus and how that you brought us back to yourself through his sacrifice. And God, during this time that we celebrate and remember the birth of Jesus, help us not to forget why Jesus came in the first place, which was to give his life as a ransom for many. We thank you for the grace that you've given to us who know you, God, that we can have a relationship with you, God, that we can be declared righteous before you, and God, that you are now for us, not against us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, as I was uh, bringing up my illustration this morning before the service, uh, Noah called me and he was like, Pastor John, can I help with the illustration today? And I wasn't going to have a, a kid help me today because it's a pretty heavy illustration. But you saw what I laid over there, Noah? All right, go ahead and, and grab that for me. Appreciate Guy Lonsdale bringing me this, uh, this prop today. Be he, he warned me, be careful, this thing is sharp. This thing's pretty heavy, isn't it? Come on up here on the stage with that. It's big, heavy. Come on, you, here, hold on, here, hand it to me, and then you come up here, okay? This thing probably weighs a good uh, 30 pounds, maybe more. And so... Let me tell you a little uh, story, Noah, about, about swords. Do you know what knights are? All right, so back in the Middle Ages and, the, and probably around the 12th century, uh, the Holy Land was occupied by the Muslims. And so many Christians wanted to retake the Holy Land, take Jerusalem again. And so they organized uh, people on what was called a crusade, and they went in to recapture Jerusalem, and they were successful. They recaptured Jerusalem, parts of the Holy Land. Well, as people, you know, they thought the Holy Land was holy, right? Because why? Yeah, Jesus. Yeah, Jesus was born there. He lived there. Jesus was born in Bethlehem. Lived in the Holy Land in Jerusalem, and so uh, that was considered a very, very important spot. And so pilgrims from these other areas wanted to go into Jerusalem, into the Holy Land, so they could worship. But the problem was they were being attacked and they were being killed. And so they formed this group of knights, this, this French knight formed this group called the Knights Templar. And this was a group of people who would begin to uh, escort the people into the Holy Land so they could go and worship in Jerusalem. Well, um, one thing that was interesting, and I read this, whether this is, oh, I don't know where that came from. Sorry, guy, if I didn't break anything, a little knife at the end. Extra bonus, huh? Yeah, a dagger, yes, a dagger. And, and so I read this, and I can't uh, authenticate the story, but uh, it was written as, as fact, as truth, that these knights that, now be very careful here, will you hold this for us? These knights, when they uh, were brought in to participate in the Crusades, um, obviously these knights were battle-worthy men, men who had seen much action, much blood, they had uh, spilled a lot of blood for, uh, for their, their crusades, on their crusades. And so when they were brought in to help and escort and be part of this nice Knights Templar group, that they were baptized into the church. 
Well, interesting, stand up here. I remember when I, I baptized you, didn't I, not too long ago? All right, imagine this, when I was baptizing you, if you brought your sword to the baptism. That's what these knights would do, supposedly. They would bring their sword to the baptismal waters. But you know what? When they were baptized, they would not allow their sword to go underwater. Not so it wouldn't get rusty or dirty. They would hold it up above, hold it up nice and high. So if I lowered you down, you would keep that sword out of the water. That's what they did. You know why they did that? Because they were unwilling to baptize their swords. Basically, what they were saying was, God, we're giving you all of us except for our swords. We're giving you all of us except for our actions upon the battlefield. We're not giving that over to you. We'll give some of ourselves to you, but we're not going to give all of ourselves to you. Thank you, Noah. Give him a hand. Appreciate it. And essentially, that is what the rich young ruler did with his wealth. He came to Jesus, and he said, Jesus, I, I, how do I earn eternal life? I kind of like you, Jesus. You're a good uh, rabbi. You're a good teacher. And Jesus said, okay, uh, you want to follow me? Here's what I need you to do. I need you to baptize everything. I need you to give up everything in order to follow me, including your wealth. And, of course, as we read last week in the, the verse in uh, verse 22, disheartened, he went away sorrowful, sad, because he had many possessions. He was unwilling to allow his wealth to be baptized for Jesus. And, I, and not to re-preach last week's sermon again, it's not about being rich or being poor. It's about giving everything to God, submitting everything to the Lordship of Christ, understanding that you can't earn and buy your way into eternal life. It's all the work of Jesus. We attached that to the previous story, which was the little children become helpless like a little child. You have nothing to bring, nothing to offer. You can't buy it and use your wealth to obtain eternal life. It's all about Jesus. And that was the big lesson for last week. Well, Peter, being Peter, and as we've seen Peter throughout the Gospels, he always says what he thinks. I love this guy. And verse 28, Peter began to say to Jesus, see, we have left everything and followed you. I love the honesty there, right? He's like, okay, yes, that guy, he didn't measure up, but Jesus, what about us? We've done all this stuff. We've done this. We passed this sell-all test, all right? We gave up our nets. We gave up our boats. We gave up our livelihoods. We're following you. Jesus, do you value the sacrifice that me and these other guys made here to follow you? We're doing what you said. We're doing what this, this uh, young, rich ruler guy wouldn't do. We're doing that. And in and, and Matthew's account, Peter actually asks, he records, what will we get out of this? All right, what's going to be in it for us? And interestingly, Jesus doesn't rebuke Peter here. He actually gives him a, a great promise as a result of following him. And he also gives him, um, tells him what the cost will be of following him. Look at verse 29 and 30 again. Jesus said, truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mothers or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold in this time. And so Jesus says, you know, if you're willing to give up your comforts of this life, and he points to the motive, look what he says here, the motive here is for my sake and for the gospel. He says what's going to happen is they'll receive a hundredfold in this lifetime, back a hundred times of what they lost. And that's pretty incredible when you think about that. What is Jesus getting at? Is that the reality of things? Well, I try to think really practically in this matter. 
uh, because, you know, oftentimes we talk about the cost of following Jesus, but we don't really focus on the reward side of things. And clearly, Scripture again and again says there is a reward for following Christ, not only in eternity, but oftentimes in this life. And we preach that, and we talk about the joy of following Christ, but so many people do not have the joy of Jesus in their life. And they're following out of drudgery, out of duty, and there's no passion there. There's no life in their life. And it, it's a really a bad representation of the gospel. And, and I thought about this just practically, and I've mentioned this over and over again over the years as pastor about my brother Mark, who was killed in a plane crash in China as a missionary. He, went to, he was 24, I guess, when he went over to China, and he was, served as a missionary there and teaching English in a school. And on, um, on his way, his return journey back, um, his plane crashed. He was killed. And this past week was his birthday, December the 5th. He would have been 51 years old. He was 25 when he was killed. So it's been a long time. And I begin to think about this, and I begin to think about my brother Mark leaving everything to follow Christ. And then I, I thought about the flip side of it, although Jesus is making that promise to those who forsake all. Um, I thought about it from my standpoint. I thought about it from the fact that my brother left his family, his brother, his land, his country, and he went away to this distant land in order to serve Christ. And the loss that I incurred, the loss that our family incurred. And I thought, you know, Jesus, does your promise hold true to this side of things as well? And, and I, I started thinking, what's Jesus getting at here in this promise? And here's what, what kind of came to my mind in this and, and, and this passage was the fact that my brother's death was what facilitated, what, what motivated me to go into full-time ministry. It really prompted me to understand how short this life is. And there's no promises in this life. And how that, that I need to utilize my time the best that I can for the kingdom. And so God prompted me really to, to vocationally to pursue ministry. And it's a pretty amazing story in itself how that all came about. But I thought about the fact that I lost a brother. But I thought about through ministry and through youth ministry, through pastoral ministry, truthfully, how many brothers in Christ I've gained being a pastor. I think about the guys I meet with in Fight Club each week, and these guys are like brothers to me. That They have my back. They pray for me. We pray together. We look at the word together. I think about... Uh, the brothers I've had throughout the time, and you met like Jeff Oldham and others who have truly, truly helped me in the thick of the battle, and as Jeff and I say, in the foxhole together. And I literally think, although that we know that no really human relationship fully replaces flesh and blood, but I think about the literally dozens and dozens of relationships that have developed as a result of ministry. And I think that's what Jesus is getting at here. This is the point he's getting to is that we gain an entire new family when we come to Jesus. And if you grew up in church, you kind of just take that for granted. But you realize there's hundreds of people in our town and thousands of people, maybe millions of people in our state, who are sitting at home right now, watching TV, isolated from the world, thinking that they're chilling and recovering for next week, and they really have no purpose and no direction in their lives whatsoever. And we take for granted that we come and we fellowship and we spur each other on, as Hebrew talks about, with brothers and sisters in Christ. This family that God has given to us 
as a result of following Jesus. And in the early church, this was so real and so practical. Think about on at Pentecost. Think about that all the fact that all the people, when Peter preached that first sermon in Jerusalem after Jesus had ascended to heaven, think about all the people at that point who placed their faith in Christ, about 3,000 people. Many of them were out-of-towners who were in for the feast and the festivals. And during this t- at this time, these people put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ, and many of them just stayed right there in Jerusalem. They stayed. Why? Because there was no church where they were going back to. The church was there. It was in Jerusalem. These were where the believers were at at this point. And so probably many of their families moved and migrated to Jerusalem, but the problem was, you know, they had no jobs, they had no homes, they had no resources. So what do we see in the book of Acts? We see that brothers and sisters in Christ opened their homes. What happened? They shared everything. They had all, all things in common with one another. And so you see here a, a, a beautiful picture in Acts of what Jesus is talking about as far as you forsake all. If you follow me, I'm going to give you an entire new family. And so the first century Christians experienced that in such a real and practical way. They literally had homes that weren't their homes and families who weren't their families. And they had people who they did life with and shared life with who were not part of their flesh and blood family. And so what a, what a beautiful picture. And I think even though times are different for us and the church expanded out, obviously, and there's Christians all over the world today, still this, this picture of the community that was formed because of our faith in Jesus and this compelling community that exists. Think about this. Think about, just think for a second. Look around, maybe glance around uh, discreetly around the room for a second and catch eyes with some people who, honestly, you would probably have very little or no association with apart from Jesus Christ. People who come from a different line of, uh, of thinking, maybe a different walk of life, a different socioeconomic class, and, and God has brought all of us together under the name of Jesus Christ. And there's just something amazing about that. And that's why over the years I've talked a lot about my desire for our church to be a church of diversity. And I love Mitch Escobar and how he puts so much emphasis into the Spanish ministry here. And we understand, uh, those who have been around church for a while, you know there's obstacles for cross-cultural ministry. And what that looks like may not be a Sunday morning service But God wants the body of Christ to be very diverse and to love one another and represent him well in our diversity because people look from the outside, look at the church, and they say, wow, that's just not the way that things normally happen in life. Typically, people migrate by their likes and interests or their age groups, but the church is this hodgepodge of people from all different walks of life that merge together in order to rally around Jesus Christ and the gospel. And I think that's what Jesus is getting at, that this biblical church that he's going to bring into existence is the greatest testimony to the truth of the gospel. That biblical church community is the greatest testimony to the truth of the gospel. The church is the gospel made visible. So when Jesus said, look, you're going to gain back a hundredfold, think about the actual physical Real, real ramifications of that, that, that we truly have this family that exists, this church that exists that did not exist before Jesus Christ. And so a healthy church should be full of these relationships that never would have existed apart from the gospel. And I think about passages like Titus 2. What does Titus 2 talk about? It talks about how that the 
older women of the church, aren't you glad he didn't define what that was, right, ladies? Um, the older women of the church should be bringing in the younger women of the church and help to train them how to be moms and how to, to raise their children right and to be good wives. And, and I think it's implied there that men, older men, take in the younger men and disciple them. And that's this whole concept of fight clubs that I talk about. And it's not just for guys. Uh, it's, it's us getting together and really, really doing life together, talking about honest, real things and how the gospel intersects our real life. And if you're not part of a guy's group or, ladies, if you're not part of a, a group that meets on a regular basis, that's really, truly allowing your lives to be opened up and for the gospel's sake and to really allow people to speak into it, you're missing such a critical part of discipleship. There should be this discipleship that's going on in our lives. And, and I think this Titus 2 model is such a beautiful model. And that's why over the years I've really encouraged K-groups not to be just age-segregated. Because there's such advantages of having people who are kind of down the road a little bit further telling you, you know what, I know it feels like that life is, I mean, you're the end of the world with these kids, right? I mean, like, like it's, it's terrible. It's awful. You, you know, you, 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 know you, you need somebody to tell you the truth that, you know, it, there's not, this is not the end. There's light at the end of the tunnel. It, it's not as bad as you think in the moment, right? There's going to be times where they grow up and the challenges are going to be different. And you need somebody who's going to speak into that. You need people who are going to disciple you along the way on the walk of life for Jesus. And, and so uh, the community that Jesus brings into existence is this diverse community, but it's this community that's compelling to the world. It speaks the gospel, and it reflects the gospel to the world. And so are, are you part of that? Honestly, are, are you part of a, a gospel-centered community? I'm not talking about necessarily you come here on Sunday, and you sit here, and you listen to the message. That's beneficial, but it doesn't replace honest-to-goodness community. Honest-to-goodness community. Mark Dever, pastor in Washington, D.C., he, he makes this statement, a pretty strong, bold statement. He says, if you have no interest in actually committing yourself to an actual group of gospel-believing, Bible-teaching Christians, you might question whether you belong to the body of Christ at all. It's pretty powerful. Because Jesus didn't save a church to sit in rows and stare up at the pastor. Jesus created the church in order to be the church. To be the church. To, to love and care and exemplify him and be the brothers and sisters. The mothers and fathers that we need to spur us on. Some of you have parents who aren't encouraging you in your walk with God. You need another set of parents, spiritually speaking. You still need your parents, but you need another set, a spiritual set of parents who are going to encourage you and talk to you and walk you through and help you understand your priorities in life. And so it worries me on a practical basis, those who have no, really no interest and desire. You know, one thing I've seen over time, and, and, and it's, it's true, and you know it's true, uh, most of the time when people push away from community, when they all of a sudden, you know, you're, they're being discipled or they're being faithful in church, and all of a sudden they just go MIA, most of the time, it's an indication of something's wrong in their spiritual walk. Most of the time, it's, there's something there. I've had people who I've invested in, discipled, and all of, a sudden they just, all of a sudden they just disappear, right? And they won't return your calls. They won't return your texts. Why? Because there's competing idols in their life. All of a sudden, they're trying to decide, am I really following Jesus or am I following other things? And so I encourage you to be next year, make it a priority. Be part of a group here 
It, it, you know, we have K groups. We have women's groups that meet periodically. We have informal groups. It doesn't have to necessarily be a structured K group. Get some people together and meet around the cause of Christ and the gospel. Make sure that's the emphasis. So you can encourage and spur each other on and disciple each other for love and good deeds. Because that's what you need. And in the, in the midst of crisis, when life inevitably will hit, will hit you, you need those who are going to help you through those moments. And that's why we do what we do. And I was thinking about, on the lines of the mission field, I was thinking about, what about those who give up everything for the cause of Christ and go off to be a missionary somewhere? Or they leave all their family and they leave everything to go and to follow Christ. Well, I was just thinking a few weeks ago, Jane Brinkerhoff was our missionary. Some of you met Jane Brinkerhoff. I would say she's in her mid-60s maybe, Chip, is that right, mid-60s, and she serves in Japan. And I emailed her early in the week, and I said, hey, I'm preaching on this passage about gaining a hundredfold. Uh, giving, if you give up everything, Jesus says, you'll gain this big family in return. I was like, what's your experience on the mission field in Japan? Because it's not an easy mission field where she's at. And I love what she wrote back to me. I want you to just listen, and this is great. She said, I definitely have experienced the truth of that promise of Jesus's and have reflected upon it often. The family that has resulted from the Jap Japanese church planted here has showered me with so much love and kindness that I feel I have enough for many families. I had four brothers, no sisters, but now I have scores of both. I have multiple women who love me like mothers and multiple men who have shown the kindness of a father. I feel it in the things they say and pray, but also in practical ways. The women often make me fabulous meals to either take home or eat with them. The doctors in the church give me free and immediate health care, and one has provided a place for my Bible studies. In prayer groups, I'm always hearing people pray not only for me, but for my family members. Before I left for Japan, my six family members prayed for me as well as my friends. But now I have many hundreds interceding for me, including you, the dear folks at Grace Church. And although I have had enjoyable experiences in the U.S. before coming to Japan, nothing can compare to being a participant in God's work of bringing new eternal lives into the world or seeing someone once hopeless and depressed in the bondage of Buddhism pouring out praise to Christ with all their heart and soul. Those things surpass all other enjoyable experiences combined. Yes, I have received a hundredfold. Isn't that encouraging? A lady who's single, been single all her life, mid-60s, in a foreign land, has given up everything, and she attests to the promises of Jesus and says, I've received a hundredfold. Jesus himself promises, not only through the community, but through himself, that he's going to make up what we give up. That there's just a special presence that Jesus gives to those who leave all to follow him. He says, I take notice of your sacrifice. I take notice of what you're giving up. And while, yes, Jesus calls all of us to give up everything at baptism, he, he said, don't hold anything back. You're baptizing all of you. You're dead to sin, alive to God. But God calls some, like Jane, to truly leave houses and lands and family. But he promises a great reward. Oftentimes in this life, but for sure, as he says, in the life to come. And in the age 
to come eternal life. What amazing promises from Scripture there that, that God says, this is what he'll do if you'll follow me. And then verse 30 again. Mark doesn't want us to forget something else. He's mentioned it quite a bit during, this, during his book. He says, with persecutions. That seems odd, right? In the, all these blessings, a hundredfold, he's going to throw in there, and then all of a sudden he drops in with persecutions, right? It's sobering, but as a believer, we must remember that, that just as Jesus experienced hostility and rejection, so does his cross-bearing community. If you're going to take his words and say, I'm going to take up my cross and follow him, suffering will be a result of that. In, in the same email that Jane sent to me, she told us to pray for a, a lady named Miss Echino, Echino, and, and here's what she said. She said, Miss Echino professed her faith in Christ and asked to be baptized. Her husband responded an adamant no because both sides of their families are Buddhist, which require tending, to, to, tending the soul in the family altar. Divorce was also threatened. A tearful Miss Echino said she couldn't go through with her baptism and worries her husband will oppose her coming to church. You know, we don't face that, do we? I mean, most of the time in America, that's not the case. And here's a, a lady literally who her husband threatened for her to divorce her if she followed through with baptism. There truly is a cost for following Christ, and Scripture makes that crystal clear. We should expect rejection. Now, yes, the United States of America has been a unique place for the last 300 years or so, right? I mean, the truth is, over the last year, hundred, couple hundred years, being a Christian could actually be something that would be advantageous to you. To be part of a community and claim yourself as a Christian could actually earn you and help you your status in uh, our country. Well, times have changed, have they not, right? We know that for sure. And in fact, some of this is good because think about this for a second. People who were Christian in name only, all of a sudden, where it's not advantageous to them, a lot of those people are departing and leaving the churches in droves because it's not advantageous for them to bear the name of Christ any longer. And so I think there's this purifying effect for these people who are Christian in name only. And, and we know that America is becoming increasingly hostile toward Christians. But, you know, that shouldn't surprise us. I mean, it's been an anom anomaly for the last 300 years that we've had this safe haven called America when it comes to religious liberty and freedom and not being persecuted. Jesus said it clearly. He said, expect to suffer persecution. And I think in verse 31, he really gets at this and reinforces this uh, in light of the rich young ruler. He says, but many who are first will be last and the last first. You see, I think many of us as Christians in America have been pretty used to being first because, again, it's been advantageous to us to be Christians in this culture. What happens when that flip-flops around all of a sudden that we're not the powerful force that we once were, which we really aren't anymore? What happens when uh, uh, Christians are looked at and scoffed at and made fun of? Where does your faith stand in those situations? Jesus says, you need to brace this idea of being last. You need to embrace the fact that the last will be first and the first shall be last. The rich young ruler appears like he's got it together. He's, he's what society lists up as like the ideal guy. And he says, Jesus says, look, he's going to be last. Why? Why is he last and others are first? Anytime, and this is an expression Jesus used quite a few times in the gospel. 
it, the idea is no matter what your status of is in the world, no matter what you own or possessed, those things doesn't, don't matter. What matters is, from God's perspective is what you do with Jesus Christ, what you do with Jesus. Whether you put your faith in him, you repent of your sins, and submit to his lordship. That's what matters. And as we um, really see practically through our culture and also through the words of Christ, that is not something that the world's going to look at fondly. I, Tim Keller says this, and it's so true. He says, the heart of the gospel is all about giving up power, pouring out resources and serving. The center of Christianity is always migrating away from power and wealth. Migrating away from power and wealth. And Jesus said that from the beginning. And I want to read 1 Peter 4.12. It's not on the screen, but just li- listen to this verse. It says, Do not be surprised at the fiery trials when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange is happening to you. He said, don't be surprised when culture rejects you because of your belief. Don't be surprised when they push back against you because how unscientific your reasoning is. Don't be surprised when you they say you're taking your faith way too seriously. It's okay if you're just, you know, kind of religious, but don't go crazy with this stuff. That's what the world wants to say. And Jesus said through Peter, he says, don't be surprised. Nothing strange happening. That's just the status. That's what happens to those who follow Jesus. John 15, 18, if the world hates you, know that it's hated me before it hated you. If it hates you, hated me first. And, and, and so can I just speak honestly into our situation that we find ourselves today in the, in the year 2019, almost the year 2020? Don't be surprised. Some of you are so angry because of the loss of power of Christianity. And a lot of this is fueled by a constant bombardage of media in in your face on and over and over and over again. You're not going to get a Christian perspective from CNN or Fox News, either one, okay? Plain and simple. You're not. Christian perspective comes from Scripture. It comes from Jesus. And he says... Don't be surprised. Don't be surprised if you give up your power. Because it never was supposed to be that way in in the beginning anyway. God, for some reason, poured out a blessing upon this nation. And while we hope and pray that our religious freedoms and liberties continue so we can continue together, we may be like the Church of China one day where we have to hide to meet or get the government's approval to meet. But that's nothing to worry about, right? Because the same God who's been sovereign for the last 300 years in America is going to continue to be sovereign. And the church in China is growing exponentially. No, you can just lay that down there. You don't have to take it to the trash. Just, just, just lay it down there. It's good. Um, you, 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 we don't have, God is blessing the church, the secret church in China. He's, he blesses in spite of the persecution. And so while we do want to do everything that we can in our abilities to vote, to advocate for our religious freedoms. At the end of the day, I think we don't be, aren't surprised by what happens. And Jesus said that from the beginning. They hate you. It's okay. They hated me first. Verse 32. He's going to make this really come to life for them, right? He starts headed toward Jerusalem. We know where he's going. This is, this is it. 
He's headed to Jerusalem. And they're going on the road, going to up to Jerusalem. And Jesus was walking ahead of them. He, he's determined. He's got a purpose. He's moving ahead of them. And they were amazed. And those who followed behind, they were afraid. They didn't know what was going on. They had not seen the sort of focus probably with Jesus. He's headed somewhere. He's going somewhere. It's not, let me teach you along the way. He's out in front. He's leading the way. He's headed to the cross. What he was given by God to do, not just at the beginning of his life, not just in a manger, but from the foundation of the earth. And so you got the 12 who are following behind, and then you got this other group. They're coming behind as well, and they're confused. It makes no sense. They still don't get it. As many times as Jesus has said it, and he's getting ready in the book of Mark, he's getting ready to say it for the third time what's going to happen, and they still don't fully comprehend and get what's about to happen. Verse 32b, he says, and he takes the 12 again, and he begins to tell them what's going to happen to him, saying, see, we're going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes. Look how, look how detailed Jesus lays this out to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him. And when he says him, he's referring to himself, uh, third person, deliver him over to the Gentiles, Pontius Pilate, right? And they will mock him, they will spit on him, they will flog him, and they will kill him. Wow. Jesus just lays it out about as clear as he can for the third time. And if the period ended there and the sentence ended there and the passage ended there, we'd be a pretty sad lot of people gathered here today. But look what he says next. He says, and after three days, he will rise. After three days, he will rise. The reality of the resurrection is why disciples can gladly leave home, family, lands, comfort, and power for the sake of of Jesus and the gospel. Because we know that there's something supernatural that's historical, it's documented, that Jesus Christ did not stay in a grave. He rose again. And that's why we gladly respond to him. That's why we gladly, with joy, do what he calls us to do. Not just for eternal life, because we hope and wish and maybe, maybe we hope it comes true. But we know Jesus predicted his death to the details. He called, predicted his resurrection, third day, and he did it. And I don't know about you, but that just gives me a boldness and strength. Because I know that this is more than just a fairy tale or a story. It's true. And, and the problem is we, we know it's true. And we talked a lot about this in our life prep class today. If you missed it, you missed a really good discussion. That you can know it up here, but it's never really grabbed your heart. It's never really taken hold of you. Because if it does, things start to change in your life. Your priorities, your love, your values change. And I'm afraid that too many of us Honestly, when we were baptized, which is just a physical demonstration of what Jesus did in our hearts, when we were baptized, we came to Jesus because we said, we want that eternal life stuff, but we don't want to lose a lot of stuff here on this earth. So we're just going to hold up out of the water a few things here. So go ahead and duck me under, but I'm, I'm holding this up because, you know what, this is more about who I am really than Jesus. And so I'm going to keep this out of the water because I need this. 
How do you expect me, Jesus, to live in this world if I don't have this? And accomplish the things you want me to accomplish. And we hold back, whether it was the knights of the Middle Ages holding back their sword, the rich young ruler in the first century holding back his wealth, or us today holding back by saying, they're my dreams, my desires, my aspirations. I want you, Jesus, but then I want my life too. You're a good add-on and tack-on because it's pretty advantageous in this world. In Bainbridge, Georgia, it's, it's not a bad thing to put a Jesus fish on my business sign. But what happens when a Jesus fish on your sign means that nobody comes to your business anymore? Maybe not in your lifetime, but prepare your kids. It's going to be in their lifetime. It, it will. You know it will. Unless God intervenes. So my challenge today is, are we making disciples who are ready? to forsake all, to give up all for Jesus because Jesus is so much more worthy and he brings so much more joy. He brings a community of people and it seems like that Jesus says, okay, here's your family. Oh yeah, I'll go see them once a month or so. I'll check on them and see how they're doing if I have time. Wow, that's pretty sad. Jesus said, "This this is your people now. It's your tribe. These are the people who are gonna push you toward following me with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Spur you on. Your friend at the pub is not going to do that, is he? Your mom who's bitter and angry at the world is not going to do that. It's your brothers and sisters who love Jesus Christ who are going to do that. So we need help. We need one another. And through this, we display him. We display the gospel. And it's worth it, not only in the next life, but the joy that he brings, as James Brinkerhoff testified in this life. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your truth because this is not the way that we normally think. I know I want as much as I can get on my terms, as often as I can get it. And to sacrifice and to give up is something that has to be a supernatural work of grace by you alone. Because left to myself, it's the opposite of the way that I think. And God, uh, most of the time I admit that I don't always enjoy being around my brothers and sisters in Christ even. Because it takes a lot of giving and not as much receiving. But you said it's better to give than to receive. And God, we trust you. That's where we trust your promises, that the joy that you bring a hundredfold if we will step outside of ourselves, stop living lives for ourselves and live them for your glory and for our brothers and sisters in Christ. God, I pray that you'll mold us and make us more into the image of Jesus Christ. God, help us to identify those swords, that wealth that we're holding out of the water today. Bring specific things to mind to us that we need to forsake in order to follow you with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. In Jesus' name we pray.